Welcome to Wah Wonders Why, a companion podcast to Smart Enough to Know Better. This episode is titled, What the Philosophy? The Price on Your Head. Some governments in the world have decided that we are no longer in the isolation phase of the COVID-19 pandemic, but we are now in the consolidation phase. Places like Australia, New Zealand, and even the United States have decided it's time to get businesses open to get the societies running again and some people are very happy about this and some people are very angry about this and there are arguments on all sides some people say we have to get the economies going people back to work and some people say well no we have to bunker down until a vaccine is found until it's perfectly safe until the disease is totally eradicated and then we can all venture out and if we don't do that then people will die or more people will die and where you fall on the spectrum, I guess, is where your answer will come. But we have to work out something is what is a human life worth? Is it valueless? Is it priceless? I mean, I think most of us would say that human life has some value. It's, it's above zero dollars. But is it priceless? Would we spend infinite money to save a life? So it's likely that the amount of money people are willing to pay for a life is somewhere between zero and infinity. I'm pretty confident about that. But beyond that, I'm not terribly sure. So I'm going to turn to an expert in all things philosophy to help me out. Sometimes, when I want to know an answer, I can do an experiment and find the data myself. And sometimes it's far too complicated. And I have to get very clever people to have done the experiments for me. I can go read it in a book. And sometimes the questions I ask have no one answer. And I can't just look it up in a book. At those times, I call on the philosopher in residence, Mr. Kevin Lowe, to help me out and to upset me and enrapture me and enrage me all at the same time. So here he is again, our very own philosopher in residence, Kevin Lowe. Oh, what a wonderful introduction. Thank you very much, Gregoire. <laughs> Human life. Let's start. Let's just get straight into it. Human life. Mm. What's it's, it worth? What's it worth? $3 million Australian, give or take. Is it, it's, what was that number? 3 or $4 million Australian, give or take. Where's that number come from? Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's politics, essentially, that we have this national budget and it's finite and we can spend it on hospitals and safer roads and public education and more police to manage traffic and all that sort of thing. Uh, but we don't want to spend all of it on that. We want to spend other money on stuff like stadiums and uh, Kirribilli House and things like that. So mm. we make a political decision that we're going to hive off a certain chunk of our national productivity and we're going to spend it on saving lives and extending lives. And then at least notionally, and politics comes into this too, but to a lesser extent, we look at the cheapest way we can buy a life, and that might be you know, a bandage. Someone's bleeding out by the side of the road. You have a $1 bandage. You wrap it around them. They live. Mm -hmm. Boom, life saved a dollar. Fantastic. And then you buy the next most expensive intervention, the next most expensive intervention, until you get into those stupid new drugs that have just come out last week that cost $200,000 a dose and preserve a cancer patient's life by 30 seconds mm -hmm. or something like that. Mm -hmm. And when the money runs out, we stop 
buying lives because we bought all the lives that we can afford with the money that we can afford to spend. Mm. Uh, and there's very distinct diminishing returns there. Uh, the one dollar lives we buy them, that's easy. But when we're getting up to spending hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars on a, new drugs that have nasty side effects and extend someone's life a very little bit, you're spending uh, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to extend someone's life a little bit. And uh, the low hanging fruit is all gone by the time we get there. Is what I'm saying. And it works out in Australia that three or four million dollars is about uh, where we're hitting the limit at the moment. So, yeah, and that's, so that's if we're buying the lives in that sense. And it's a very good point there. If you're creating, if you had to spend money on saving people, do you save a number of people? So you, do you create a drug that creates or a, a medical procedure that saves a thousand people? Or do you save a, um, or, or, do you, or do you create a drug that saves one person that, that, but definitely gives them seventy more years of life? If you see, it's like it's one thing. I'm a bit confusing there. If those are thousand people. They only live one more year. That's a thousand years of life. But you could put that money to save younger people for a different disease, let's say, and get more years of life saved. So is it number of lives, or is it the number of years in the life that's important? Well, people use different analytical tools depending on the task, but the most widespread is the quality-adjusted life year, uh, that we treat one year of life as being one year of life, no matter who it belongs to, uh, whether it's a jerk or a nice person, a young person or an old person, doesn't matter. We imagine, for the sake of this you know, unit we're going to create, that all lives are equal. And obviously, that's not true, um, <laughs> but we imagine they are. Uh, mm. And then they say, uh, this uh, we modify that year by the quality of life. Uh, so most people get intuitively that they would, if they had a choice between, say, living another 50 years with perfect vision and a good back or 49 years and 11 months blind with a really bad back that hurt them all the time, let's say, given those two, I would trade off some of my lifespan for higher quality of life. Mm. And we can talk about how they try and home in on an actual number for this, and it's somewhat arbitrary. But the essential idea is you ask a bunch of people, they all estimate uh how they much they value a given quality of life in terms of a fraction of unimpaired life. And we say, how much can we buy that for? Uh, so if this drug would give me one year of life at half the quality of life subjectively estimated of a year of regular life, uh, then that works out to be worth you know, sort of $25,000 or $30,000 to the Australian people. Uh, Medicare will spring for it at that price. But if it's 60000 for one year of life with 50% quality of life, nah, too bad, not worth it. The money's run out. Can't afford that one. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And I think that's, that's a good point there. If, if someone said to me, Greg, you've been diagnosed with, this, with the sickness, it's going to kill you, and, but you can survive if we give you this drug that lasts a million dollars a day, do you want it? And I'm like, yes, give it to me. And they're like, how are you going to pay for that? And I go, I'd expect society to save me. Thank you very much. Because we live in a wonderful society of wonderful people who, where life is precious and priceless. And so a million dollars a day to save me seems like a small price indeed. And that's me. And I'm, I'm talking for myself there because, you know, I don't want to die. But if someone said to me, well, Greg, there are people on the other side of the country who you've never met, you're never going to meet, and they need a million dollars a day to live, do we save them? I'm a little bit more hard-pressed. Maybe I'm just being honest and maybe I'm just a bastard. But do you see what I'm saying? Is, what, where's the, is, is life priceless or is life – like what, what level are we allowed as a society to say, no, that's way too much. My taxes can't afford that. I don't want to pay money beyond this level to save your life. 
Well, in that case, we can give a pretty easy answer, which is that if we kept you alive for a year at a million dollars a day, we'd be throwing about 90 other Australians under the bus, give or take, whose lives we could have saved with that money. Mm. So we're essentially every four days sacrificing someone on the altar to keep Gregoire alive for four more days. And when you put it like that, most people, most people can see that's not an ethical way to proceed. Now, if you happen to be a billionaire and you can afford to spend it, by all means, spend your own money. Mm. Um, but we're not going to sacrifice 90 people a year uh, to feed this beast. Because <laughs> um, that, that that would just be crazy. Um, that is that my nickname, said, by the way, <laughs> Greg, Greg, the, Greg the Beast War. That's the. Uh... <laughs> mm. uh, but we are interestingly flexible about uh, how we spend this money. That uh, neonatal ICU, uh, people are mm-hmm. happy to spend a fortune on that because it's tiny little premature babies. Mm-hmm. Throw money at that. Mm-hmm. Um, it could no very frequently seriously premature babies have lifelong impairments that mean they can't live an independent life uh, and you know their quality of life is quite low in many cases not always um you know but they tend to trump it in the media miracle preemie baby who's fine you never see front page of the career mail Mir- miracle premature baby burn permanently permanently brain damaged deaf and blind but they're alive yeah yeah it's a real good story uh or people who get lost on a yacht uh, people get lost on a yacht. We'll spend a fortune having helicopters and the Navy and everything crisscross the seas mm. trying to find this Yahoo on a yacht uh, when we wouldn't spend the same amount of money to uh, preserve the life of the average person who was in a car crash or something like that. Mm. Uh, but when there's drama or a really cute victim, uh, we're a bit more flexible with <laughs> how much we're willing to spend uh, to keep these people alive. You know, once someone's face is in the newspaper, like uh, those kids who were trapped in a Thai cave, was mm-hmm. it? Yes. Uh, yeah. Last year. Uh, people were willing to spend a fortune to get those kids out of a cave because it was an easily understandable crisis situation. They had names, they had faces, they were in a cave, which is awesome. Uh, and you would have <laughs> appeared to be a complete jerk if you're sitting there with your slide rule and your abacus going, uh, yeah, no, actually, it's something that's going to creep up over four million per head to get these kids out. So let's let them drown. Yeah. But, yeah, you would appear like a total jerk if you did that. Mathematically, I think it would be the correct thing to do, uh, but emotionally, <laughs> it's very hard to sell that when it's someone's name and face that they know. It's much easier, uh, you know, to paraphrase Stalin, when a million deaths is a statistic, yes. uh, than when it's a dozen deaths of kids with names and faces and a story that you've heard about. Uh, that gets tougher. But you now, I think ideally. Uh, we wouldn't have a system of government where that mattered because the people who are dying in hospital of preventable diseases at exactly the same time those kids are in the cave, their lives are just as important, even though they don't have a cool story about going into a cave and getting trapped by rising flood water. Mm. Uh, so I think it shouldn't matter. Uh, and I think cases where we do bend the rules like that are few enough and far enough between. It's not really a hill I want to die on. I'm not going to get out there wearing my philosopher hat holding a placard saying, let's not die, uh, they cost too much. <laughs> yeah, that's right, especially for a million dollars a day. It's, it's very dangerous to die on these expensive hills. Don't pick a cheaper hill to die on, I think. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, yeah. Um, so, Upshot, does human life have finite value well it has to because we have finite resources with which to try to preserve human life i mean in some sense we could say every life is irreplaceable and you can't place value on okay cool but there are billions of them and we can't save them all so Mm -hmm. however you characterize it we have to pick and choose who we save and uh if we save lives from the cheapest life to save to the most expensive life to save eventually the money runs out and we've got to stop saving people I was really fascinated when I looked into this. Um, I found more American information, more so than Australian information. But one of the ideas, the, Ameri- uh, the American uh, Environment Protection Agency, started talking about 
how much would it would a human being earn in a lifetime? So a capitalist country, of course, and we are one too in Australia. And but looking at how much someone earns over a year, over a year, over a lifetime, and but not just the value of their um, income, but their value to society. How much unpaid labor they put into things? How you know how much art or you know, basically anything their their value. So they tried to work it out in that way and came out with a number that was quite ludicrously high, I think anyway, of nine point six million dollars. So uh American dollars to so what they what they based all that on and why they worked out that number, which I really like, is if you if you have to put in an environmental uh protection into something, then if it's going to cost more than let's say ten million dollars per person to fix, it's not worth doing. Uh, and mm-hmm. so, and the same number, which I really love, because one of my favorite movies is Fight Club, for lots of different reasons, and not for those reasons. I know some of my listeners are like, "Oh my god, he's one of those," but no, no, it's for, look, we can t- talk Fight Club another day. But uh, in that, they talk about his job. The narrator's job is is um, doing um, audits on car crashes to see if something has to be done to make the car more safe, and if you know a family of four goes off the road at so many hundred kilometers an hour and they all burst into flame because they can't get out of the car, that's a tragedy, and it can be fixed by having, let's say, fast-release um, seatbelts, but the cost of that, that's higher than the number of cars and the number of people that it's not recalled, and at the time, the cars aren't recalled, say, and at the time I was horrified, but then now maybe I've become older and more jaded. I kind of look at that and go, yes, there has to be a, a limit to the cost. There has to be, you can't say, well, it'll cost society $100 billion to fix this. Because you're like, well, who's going to pay it? How is it going to be paid? Like, where's it come from? Uh, if, enough, if it doesn't affect enough people, do we fix it? Um, it? It seems really horrible sometimes to think in that way. But it's also the understanding that there isn't limited, unlimited resources. We have to put them somewhere. Mm, I think the reason why that example is horrifying is that to the car company, you and your family burning to death in a wrecked car is a negative externality. They don't have to pay the full cost of that. They're like a chemical company dumping their waste in the river. Mm. Uh, As long as it's more cost effective for them to let you burn than fix a cheap component or it's more cost effective for the chemical company to dump their chemicals in the river and give you cancer than is to clean up their own mess, they will do it. That's a horrifying thing. Now, if they were paying the full 9.6 million per life Mm. or whatever it is, every single time someone died as a result of their 40 vehicle and it was still not cost effective to do a recall, uh, then it would be a genuinely interesting situation. Mm. One where I think if you published this and the public were rational, they would look at the numbers and say, I agree. I don't want these cars recalled and fixed. That would be a waste of money. Mm. And uh, it, it, they looked at it also. The one, the example I found really interesting was talking about putting reverse cameras into their cars. So in America, mm-hmm. modern cars just have to have reverse cameras because people would go out of the driveways and, and it happen. It's horrific and horrible and terrible, but they would run over their toddler or someone else's toddler. Uh, and it, absolutely gut-wrenching and terrible stuff. And they looked at the cost of this and went, well, how much will it cost to recall the cars or add these cameras into the cars at the time when it was really expensive? Cameras weren't as cheap as they were today. And the cost was way too high. They looked at it and went, well, no, the cost is too high, so we're not going to do this. And that caused a, um, a furor. So in, in that case, they actually it went back to court and back and forth and back and forth. But as you said before, because it was cute toddlers and not sort of like an ugly homeless man, if, then in the end, they managed to get enough political will to change the law anyway, even though it was technically not cost-effective to do so. 
And uh, once again, it, if it had been homeless people sleeping in the wheel, uh, the, the wheel arches and then being crushed to death, it may not have happened in my mind. It may have just been because it was cute toddlers, which is fair enough. Mm, we do have this cultural value that children are, quote, unquote, innocent and hence entitled to some sort of special protection from society. And maybe there is something there that by the time you're our age, we're in our 40s-ish, ish uh we've had time to make an impact on society if we really cared about homeless people sleeping in wheel wells or car safety or something we could have done something about it by now whereas a two-year-old has no hope whatsoever mm. uh so maybe in a very weak way I, I mean i don't completely buy this argument because i think in real terms my ability to influence honda or mitsubishi or whoever's safety practices is very very limited um but uh, you can say the kid, it's definitely not their fault if they get backed over by a machine designed by grown-ups and parted by grown-ups. They had no say in the you know, the whole social and economic and political process that led to us all driving around in these death machines, sometimes backwards, sometimes around kids. Mm. Uh, so perhaps there is something going on there that children are more entitled to our protection because we decided to make them. They didn't decide to exist. They've had less chance than us to redesign the world to mitigate these risks and so maybe um, spending a few extra million to save the cute little toddlers uh, might have an ethical basis um, because they're not responsible for the situation they're in. Uh, And maybe to a limited extent, we adults are, or at least more are. Let's extrapolate that out a bit. That's interesting. I can see your point on that. So let's extrapolate to to the bugbear, the big one, global warming, climate change. Mm. So that seems to be now a lot of the argument for younger people is saying we're going to be around for a lot longer than you you old bastards so you've ruined the planet so we need to you need to change it now for us because we don't have the political power to change it and and that seems to be gaining some traction to be honest that seems to be something that makes people where people say if you say the polar bears are dying people go well i don't i've only ever seen a polar bear in a book anyway so why would i care on some level some people don't I'm not, that's not all people of course but some people think that and and or they go oh it's going to be more horrible horrible for people in in these countries i've never heard of like more flooding more droughts and you're like well i don't care and then if you're in your area if you're part of the world if you're, well, we're going to have like sea um, the sea level is going to rise and you go well, we'll just put up sea walls we'll be fine like we're a rich country we can afford to mitigate these problems but there's always a reason not to change it but when suddenly your doe-eyed 12 year old turns up and says Daddy, why did you let the world die and all the zebras die? Why do you hate me? I think it's harder to to stand there and do nothing. I mean, I'm a childless man, and even I think that would be difficult to do. (laughs) Mm, It's even a stronger case that people who don't even exist yet absolutely cannot be morally responsible for climate change in a way that makes it okay to subject them to the ill effects of climate change. I mean, we are literally murdering people who do not exist yet and Mm. have no say whatsoever in the decisions we're making that lead up to them dying preventably as a result of climate change. Mm. Now, I, I will say that the whole area of what we call in the trade diachronic moral obligations, moral obligations between people at two different times, are really philosophically tricky and complicated. Uh, now, if we make it really simple, if we say the only thing that matters is how much carbon I put in the atmosphere now and how much they suffer later, then when you've simplified down like that, it becomes pretty trivial to say, obviously, I should emit very minimal carbon, the the least I can get away with to make it nice for this person. Uh, But generally speaking, quality of life has gone up for everyone all over the world in the last couple of hundred years. 
So yes. it seems a bit weird to say to you know, a peasant living in the 1700s, hi, I'm Kevin, I've travelled back in time from the year 2020. Uh, oh, what's it like, Governor? I say, oh, it's <laughs> lovely. Uh, we've got the internet, we've got air conditioning, we've got antibiotics. Mm. Uh, there's this terrible plague sweeping the world, so everyone in the world communicated electronically in order to stay home to kill the plague. It's fantastic. They, Ooh, ah, Governor, so why are you back? Oh, I want you to really sacrifice your quality of life so I can have an even better one. Could you do that for me, please, 17th century person? Make some big sacrifices for mm. me. Uh, mm. That seems weird because I've got it so much better than they do. Why should they be sacrificing their happiness for me? Uh, so the same argument can be made. Uh, the people in the year 2100 are going to have their flying cars and you know, laser whatever uh, and all the sci-fi stuff that we can only dream of and you know, guess badly what it will be. They'll have a great life compared to me. Uh, why should I give up my cool stuff now so that they can have a slightly better life in the future? You're hope, we're hoping that it's just that seems. We're to, hoping to, it's better. Yeah. That's, the, that's the trajectory as well. We, we look at it and we go, well, just because the sun rose yesterday doesn't mean it will definitely rise tomorrow. I mean, well, you know, as an astrophysicist, I shouldn't say that, but it's <laughs> it's um, <laughs> it does make it. Yeah, we we don't know it's going to get better. I mean, this is the first generation. My generation, our generation, has a well, looks like we'll have a lower life expectancy than the generation that produced us for the first time in. A couple hundred years, that's been, I mean, it's over a couple hundred years, yes. So everything's been getting better. For some reason now it's getting a little bit worse. So maybe in 200 years' time, if we don't value it higher, if we don't do something, that they could be in a very bad position indeed. We don't know, I guess. Um, I guess we do know because the climate will be worse. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it depends on will everything else be so much better that it doesn't really matter that the climate's worse, uh, or will be the climate being worse be such a big deal that the other change in quality of life won't matter? Uh, and as you say, can we extrapolate from the fact that generally quality of life has gone up all around the world in the last couple of hundred years to the conclusion that it will definitely continue to do so to such an extent that the, that dispels uh, moral obligations towards those future people. Mm. Uh, it's a tough one, and all of it hinges on futurism, on trying to predict accurately what will the world be like in 100 years. And, you know, the people of 1920 would not have done a very good job of predicting what 2020 would look like exactly. Mm. Uh, and I don't see any strong reason to think we're that much better about it, that we have a really clear picture of what life will be like in 2120. I think this is a case where maybe the ethical thing to do is just do our best and hope that it all works out. Because if we don't know for certain uh, that we're not screwing future people over really badly and we're not giving up too much. I mean, I don't, no one's asking anyone to go back to the Stone Age. Uh, maybe just more of a be content with a standard of living that's you know, closer to Australian 50,000 a year than Australian 120,000 a year. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's well, and even yeah, that's right. And trying to get resources or using resources in different ways. We're straying a little bit off. This is uh, we're going down some very interesting paths. But I'll pull a bit more back into the value of human life. See, the only reason we're focusing on it right now is because people are angry. Some people are angry that other people want to get a coffee or go to the pub or go to the beach uh, or go to work. Um, and and some people think we should stay home and some people think we shouldn't. We should be, uh, we should be going out and doing stuff. And, uh, the only, maybe only the sick people should stay home and all the people who are immune compromised should stay home. And the rest of us who are unlikely to die from this, let's keep that in mind that most of us will get sick and not die. As far as we understand this, we just get a very bad flu. Some people are asymptomatic at best. Uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's, we, um, 
uh, that maybe that's that we just have to take on just like any other disease we have to understand that some people are going to die and some people won't how do you balance that like how do you say well i'm very sorry old people you're probably going to die unless you stay home can we do that is it even vaguely ethical to do that Oh, I mean, it's a fascinating and complicated collective action problem where everyone's actions impact everybody else. If I run around socializing with people, I could potentially give the disease to hundreds of people who could then give it to hundreds of people. So one person's little butterfly flapping of spreading the virus can have huge impacts. Uh, but it's also one where individual evaluations of how to live our best life uh, are going to be different. It's going to be very hard to say uh, if I am willing to take a 1% risk of dying to go back to work now and you know, assume for the sake of argument I'm informed and rational and you say, no, I draw the line in a different place. I want 0.1% risk of death before I go back to my job. And so I said, no, you're crazy. Your job's not worth a 1 in 1,000 risk of dying. I want 0.001%. Mm. I don't believe there's a right or wrong answer. It's just an in- independent uh, evaluation of how you value the future where you're back at worth uh, work uh, and how you value the future where you're dead uh, and how you estimate the relative probability of those two outcomes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I find this fascinating as what we should do as a society. In theory, what you can do is, you know, do, do the maths, multiply it out. So, you know, the value of a human life notionally is probably about 9.6 million. But in our flawed Australian political and economic system, we're only willing to spend about four million to preserve it, mm-hmm. no, work it out. Uh, what's the net cost of everyone staying home for another month, taking everything into account? Mm-hmm. Uh, what would be the net cost in lives of everyone going back to business as usual today? Do the maths. And you know, in theory, it's simple arithmetic. One of those two figures will be larger than the other, and then you should do whatever the maths say, that everyone go back to work right away and just eat the death toll, or everyone stay at home, just eat the economic loss. Uh, but... I think the problem is that the science is far from settled. The error bars are huge. Mm. And I don't think anyone on earth could say as of the date today, mm. uh, what is the date today? Friday the 8th, 8th as we speak. Yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, as of Friday the 8th. I don't think anyone on earth can say they know with rigorous scientific certainty what the best thing to do is. Everyone is sort of looking through the fog and saying, you know, based on all this fuzzy evidence with huge error bars, the peak of the probability curve is that we should probably maybe do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what makes it even more complicated is that it's not one dial that we turn between zero and a hundred and say, okay, let's have society 25% open. Mm-hmm. Uh, so are we going to send the kids back to school? Are we going to send just mm-hmm. grade one and grade 12 back to school? Uh, are we going to allow two people in a room or three or four or five? Do we get four square meters each or three or two? Uh, there are so many dials to turn. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's just a weird part of human nature that we need someone to make a decision and then tell us this is right. Four square meters per person, that's the rule. No, two people can visit, but not three. That's the rule. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> it's best to all pitch in and obey those rules and act like uh, they're well thought out, solid rules with good reasoning for them to be there. Are they? Ooh, <laughs> I'm going to act like they are, but deep down <laughs> I know that uh, the truth is no one knows for sure. And you know, hopefully this person's guesswork is a little bit better than mine. Mm. And so since it, it's the very slightly sighted leading the blind in the world of the blind, the person with a very, very dim glimmer of the scientific truth is king, and we should treat them as absolute ruler just for the next few months. I anyway. think in our country, in Australia, I think I'd be willing to bet that the federal government 
is following, if not scientific information, economic information, as you were talking about before. I would be very surprised if the chief medical officer wasn't informing the the economists in the federal government of what it will cost if we all do nothing and what if we cost if we do everything and they're charting a course through it that way. And they can't say that, of course. I, this is just supposition on my part, by the way. But I think that's what they're doing. It's not scientific as much as it's economic. I'm sure it'd be more economic. But no one could ever admit that they're willing to let a percentage of people die or get sick. Um, but it, because you can't, you can't do that. You cannot, as a ruler in a democracy, say we thought it was cool that so many people died. You, and even though it may be in inverted commas the right thing to do or the only thing to do, this disease is going to kill people no matter what. Then, and inconvenience other people. Well, I'd say in Australia and New Zealand, it doesn't seem like you can do that, or at least nobody's really game to do it. In the USA, they're saying that bit right out loud. They're saying, let's get back to work, let some people die, uh, but keep the economy moving uh, completely sincerely, I think. Yeah, actually, good point there. I mean, they're, they're doing things, jaw-droppingly strange things, in my mind, of of turning up into their legislating bodies with, with high-powered weaponry, which I just, wow. I mean, it just shows you the difference in culture. I always think, oh, Australia, America, we're very similar. And then I see that and I'm like, oh, no, I don't understand you at all. I, that's something that it seems unfathomable to me, of, of, you know, freedom, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, tyranny and, yeah, it's very odd to me. The tyranny, fighting tyranny with a gun makes me feel weird. But that's, again, probably a different podcast. <laughs> mm, okay, uh, I'll, I'll leave it after this, but it's occurred to me that on the bright side, so far, to my knowledge, they haven't used them. Uh, and mm. I, it always seems like to the American right wing, having an assault rifle is like a Sikh having a knife on their belt. <laughs> very few of them, actually, very few Sikhs pull out knives and stab people at servos. Uh, it is virtually unknown. Uh, and very few of these gun nuts ever use their guns to do anything than march around holding it as a symbol of their constitutional rights. Mm. Uh so though it does seem crazy to us that these people want to have the ability to murder anyone in a 200-yard radius at a moment's notice. Extinguish they, all, and they're not happy extinguish they 200 lives, yes, within a mile. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> the fact is they, they don't do it very much. They do have no. occasional street killers, but most of the people marching down the street waving their terrifying mass murder weapons mm. aren't going to do anything with them. They just got them as a symbol that uh, means a lot to them. And uh, so they're marching through the streets with a symbol of political freedom. Anyway, we'll, we'll leave that alone. Because, and, you know, and, and, well, well you, look, you've poked a bear now. So look, <laughs> yeah. I, I, like to, I like to point out all those people are very, are very um, pasty, pasty skinned people. <laughs> they're very pale people. Uh, and it's not because they're frightened that they're going to get gunned down in the streets. Let's put it that way. Uh, I think that if a certain hue of human being tried that same thing, they would get gunned down very quickly. It, that's just my take on it. Maybe I'm a, I, no, and I am an ignorant Australian. Let's point this out. Let's you know. No, I, I think you're right that there's a, in America there is a semiotics of gun possession and display. Uh, certain categories of people, if a white person is seen walking around with an assault rifle naked in their hands or a pistol in a holster at the hip, uh, the message that conveys is. I'm a true blue freedom loving American, but I'm not actually going to shoot anyone. Uh, and that is 
not always the truth, but mm. reasonably often. Whereas if a black person has a legally owned, you know, licensed firearm stuck in the waistband of their pants, the semiotics are totally different. That's taken as a immediate lethal threat to everyone in the neighborhood. And, you know, let's get a hundred police with assault rifles in there and snipers. And mm. uh, if he can move so much as a finger, take that as a threat to human life. Uh, mm. Mm. The, the meaning conveyed by the possession and display of weapons seems to clearly be racially coded uh, in the U.S. consciousness. Just a bit. Uh, <laughs> just a bit. Uh, okay, so let's come back. Let's come back to sort of other topics here. I want to explore the concept of being essential. Mm. I'm, I'm finding this amazing I, I, as I watched it all happen. So when it all first started happening, to begin with, in a lot of countries, UK and the US and Australia and New Zealand and other other Westernized countries, especially. Suddenly there were essential services like doctors and paramedics and, and the police. And these were all the essential people to keep society going. And, and I sort of nodded and went, yeah, no, I understand that. That makes sense. And, he, and then they sort of said, oh, um, and now also uh, teachers. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay, I can, I can see that. Teachers in school, I can see that looking after the youth. Yeah, I think they're, they're meta-essential. In a sense, they're essential to the police and doctors and whatnot getting to work. So yes. they perform an essential enabling role to the really yes. essential people. Yeah, and then and then they suddenly open it up to to the person who is stocking the shelves at the supermarket. Now they're essential, and and the street cleaners and all these people do very important jobs. And I'm not I'm not maligning. That's a hard job, and and you know, yes, wow, I that's not the point I'm trying to make. I just suddenly went, oh, it, it, that's essential. And then suddenly our prime minister went, if you have a job, you're essential. So everyone's mm. essential. So I went, well, when everyone's essential, no one's essential. To quote the incredibles like it's it's or paraphrase them i i just does this does being essential do you think mean anything at all well i think it stopped meaning anything very quickly in australia that i think everyone recognized straight away some essential jobs need doing and you mentioned people who stop the shelves at supermarket but i think they are absolutely essential they're part of the food chain that keeps everyone in australia fed and hence alive and mm. if people stopped stocking store shelves uh, then you know there would be food riots within a fortnight and people dead within a matter of weeks from starvation. So mm. they are essential. Um, but once you've got food and you've got water and arguably electricity, but I think we do need electricity for preparing safe food so you can sort of bundle them together. The people who make sure that's all. And happening, I will I not have if I can't essential. get. If I can't get Netflix, there's going to be problems. I'm just going to say <laughs> this. So you know, yes, electricity is very. Well, let's face it. Uh, the I think the World Health Organization or or was it the or was it um, the United Nations declared internet access an essential thing as well. So that's mm. you know that's always useful. But anyway, go on. Sorry, I digress. Uh, yeah, and I think everyone agrees that if a job is essential, absolutely it must be kept going with suitable precautions and safeguards and personal protective equipment if need be. But it must go on. That's a, a simple, straightforward, logical argument everyone can follow. Mm. Um, but then as soon as we accepted that. You know, everything started getting smuggled in as essential. And they, wait a minute. Uh, yeah, the definition of essential vanished overnight uh, by the declaration that anyone with a job could just decide they were essential. If, you know, designing software for a computer game or something that's essential, I've, I've got to say, no, stay home. Mm. Uh, but it was left up to individual employees, but more crucially employers in many cases, to decide whether or not what they were doing was essential mm. and whether they could demand that their employees risk their lives and the lives of potentially uh, exponentially large numbers of other people by coming in and working. 
And uh, possibility was another concept that got very loosey-goosey very quickly. Mm. Uh, I won't name specific names because I work in the tertiary area, but mm-hmm. uh, one leading figure in the tertiary education field who I won't specify uh, said, we are doing everything possible to preserve jobs. Mm. And, well, a lot of jobs are going, and we could see a lot of places where money could be saved if you stopped building buildings or stopped paying higher salaries to high-ranking members of the university organization. Mm-hmm. So this mm-hmm. definition of everything possible uh, doesn't seem to play on conventional notions of logical possibility or physical possibility. <laughs> so what does it mean that it's impossible to save these jobs? Uh, and what does it mean that these jobs are essential? Now, I think those words stopped meaning anything very quickly. I thought that in the end, sorry, very quickly, I thought the word essential was coding for sacrificial. And what, mm. they, what we, because all the, there was a big difference between there's, a, there's an essential person and there's an essential role, and they're very different things. They're both essential. We both add the adjective of essential, but we forget to add the second bit. So in this case, a doctor may be an essential person doing an essential role but it's the per- because that person took years and years and years to train and now especially if they're a virologist we need them working on the virus so they're they're essential essential like they're an essential person with an essential role but if you're stacking shelves you, your role is essential but you could drop dead from COVID 19 tomorrow and we just put another drone in your place and that's horrible mm. and I don't, I'm, that sounds very harsh but the role is essential the cog that fits into that role is not and you're sacrificial, and and I. It was funny how I felt society was trying to to stoke their egos and make them feel better about being sacrificed on the altar of human progress uh, by calling well, at, them essential. At the very least, it feels like they should have been paid danger money as soon as we knew that there was a danger. That yes. if we send our army. Uh, into Afghanistan or something to try to, quote, keep the peace, unquote, whatever that actually means in practice. No, we know a certain percentage of them won't come back and we pay them extra money loading that in some sense makes up for the fact that they're not safely behind a desk in Australia. Mm. Mm. Um, We could have done that. We could have passed laws saying straight away, right, if you're stocking shelves, danger money. You're not getting $20 an hour anymore. You're getting $40 an hour Mm. because you're essential. Yes. Did that happen? No. No. And I think that's what you can say to people too. If you said – look, we need these to be stacked. And someone's like, well, I don't want to die to stack beans or toilet paper. And you're like, no, we understand that. So you can go and we'll write you a glowing reference. Like, there's no hard feelings. But if you do stay, we double your salary whilst this crisis is going. And and then if, if you still say no. Once again, that's an economic, rational, hopefully, decision that you made. If If that's what you want to do, you can walk away. Now, of course, that's not purely rational because if you're a person who works in a supermarket snacking shells, it seemed, the evidence seems to show economically that you probably don't have $400 to $1,000 in your bank account to get around these problems, any any future economic problems. So even by doubling their pay, they still have to take that money because they can't go anywhere else. They're going to die otherwise. Mm, it's like being conscripted into a high-paying military job. With a, Congratulations, Greg, you're conscripted into the army. We're going to pay you 200000 a year, but you get shot at. Yes. Oh, is that an upgrade? Yeah, yes, exactly. More money, more, more lead. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so it's it's not as easy as saying we have to pay them all. But I do agree. I think there should have been there should be more money. But And then the, the problem is how do you pay all this? But it, it, what I've discovered is, once again, well, I'm going to get into this later on in another podcast, but fiscal policy and monetary policy are very interesting things that allow us to suddenly find money where we couldn't find money before. Once again, I don't want to get too political here. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's very hard not to because all of these decisions are intensely political. Uh, We had this 
you know, notion, uh, broadly speaking, that economic and social arrangements in Australia were fair-ish before the pandemic. And, you know, there were those ratbag Marxists going, no, it's totally unfair. The 1% have all the good stuff and the lower people are missing out. Um, but there wasn't broadly a sort of a national consciousness of unfairness. And then COVID comes along and it turns these things on their head. Uh, the store workers are now at much higher risk of death mm. than they were before, for example. Now, if it was fair before, it can't possibly be fair now. That these people aren't making much more money or working under you know, much better conditions than they were before. Uh, but we had you know, a very short period of trying to confront this, but I think it's just logically inescapable uh, these people got screwed and you know, teachers similarly uh, they're being put on the front lines of copying the virus uh, because they're quote essential unquote mm-hmm. um, but they aren't getting a pay rise out of it and a lot of them have done amazing work in a very short period of time to try and convert the whole curriculum into an online curriculum virtually mm-hmm. overnight mm-hmm. and i don't think they've been uh, getting extraordinarily extra compensation for doing that either uh and no clearly this has to be unfair if the pre-covid arrangements were anything close to fair in the first place mm. it's it there's a feeling of in a crisis everyone has to shoulder more of the more of the uh, pain and I'm not necessarily against that but I don't know if it's evenly put out to many people some people are yeah some people are shouldering a lot more pain than others and uh, mm-hmm. and, and and people aren't accepting that or we're doing things like 7 p.m clapping for the teachers clapping for the nurses and it's a nice gesture but it's it's a hollow gesture when it's not backed up mm-hmm. with actual help and and I find that a bit frustrating yeah, and getting back to what you were saying about the government, in all likelihood sitting there right now looking at graphs of economic loss versus death toll from COVID and working out what to do, uh, I would really love to be a fly on the wall in those rooms because I want to know if they're counting things like nail salons, economic turnover as you know, something worth people dying for. Mm. You know, saying mm. If we opened all the nail salons tomorrow and this many million dollars of cash was turned over and this many nail salon employees got paid and so on, are they counting that as a win? Are they counting that as something which is worth sacrificing a certain number of lives to achieve? Uh, or are they doing some kind of analysis where they say now salons, non-essential, they, they count zero against human life, uh, education, training more doctors and things that does save human life in some sense going forward. We'll, we will give that some value mm. when we're weighing these things up. I don't know. And I wish I knew uh, yeah. it'd be fascinating to be there. I think Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy uh, in one of the books uh, had a fable about a civilization that set off across space <laughs> in four great arcs. And one of the four arcs had all the jobs that the people who setting up the system deemed useless and stupid, like the people who cleaned telephones and mm-hmm. everyone who had a job that they thought was inessential and useless. And they stuck them all together. Uh, so maybe uh, we should be doing some kind of evaluation like that and saying, well, look, you know, m- middle management and human resources and maybe you can take a couple of months off and nothing bad will happen just don't do anything and stay home and we'll see how that works out because we know it won't work if you leave the uh shelf stackers at home for a month you know there are (laughs) tidbits that history like there's a very well-known anecdote that a while back i think it was the new york police force went on pseudo strike in protest against government policies they didn't like uh, and they just stopped patrolling and they would only go anywhere if they were specifically called Mm -hmm. and crime went down (laughs) (laughs) now what's cause and effect there it's hard to say Uh, it must be that uh, fewer crimes getting detected um, mm-hmm. and you know, victimless crimes weren't getting uh, 
punished and so the perception what but um yeah it seems like there are some people who do jobs that we've never scientifically tested what happens we just tell them to stop yeah for a few months and yeah. maybe we should do that more often maybe we should identify people and say you know uh, let's see what happens if you just, just don't do your thing for a while. What's the cost? What's the cost here? There's another story from, I think, Second World War uh, of a military unit whose commander got tired of all the time his people were spending on paperwork and just said, burn it all. F*** it. We're not going to do any paperwork. We'll know our jobs. We'll just do the goddamn job. Move the stuff. Um, they were in army logistics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and apparently in the short term, that worked much better as well. Uh, that freed from the need to document what they were doing, a competent group of people who knew what to do could just do it and get it done in a fraction of the time. Um, but you know, when you have a totally unaccountable system, you end up with the Pentagon missing trillions they can't really account for. <laughs> so, yeah, it, I'm not putting it forward as a universal truth that you can do away with accountability and systems and record-keeping mm. um, or, or do away with police. Uh, but there's definitely a place for uh, checking, is this thing they're doing actually that important or necessary what happens if we do without it for a bit uh and you know there are lots of things i could pick on you know i think you know if all the chiropractors just boarded up their offices for a year <laughs> we could come back and see yes. what australia's nationwide back health looked like after a year and if you know, incidents of serious back pain and disability and so on had gone up fair enough mm. we open the chiropractors offices if it's about the same as where it was beforehand on yep. the other hand uh, we could just send people around to now up another load of boards, make it permanent, and you know we'd have improved as a society. <laughs> I think there's going to be a lot of papers from COVID nineteen on all sorts of things like this, looking at what happened in certain areas. This is like an experiment we didn't know we we're going to do. I, I saw when it happened, I was interested. And uh, I was a little bit outraged when I realized that in, in Australia, liquor stores never closed. They were they were deemed mm. essential. And I was like, what the hell is that about? And I was disconnected that I happened to see in Twitter people talking about it. And I wasn't involved. I was just reading the thread. And someone said what I said. What the hell is that about? And other people were like, no, 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 no. You have to have alcohol open because people will get rowdy if there's no alcohol. Like, they really don't want to. So it's, it's worth keeping the, them open because it just keeps society a little bit more mellow. Uh, that was their suggestion. I'm not saying it's definitely true. And then someone else said, and if you're an alcoholic, suddenly not having alcohol is like not having your medicine. It's really, really bad. And it will make people very sick. And some people in this thread were saying, oh, yeah, good point. Hey, we must go and get bottles of wine for these people because they are functional alcoholics or vaguely functional. So I guess sometimes what's essential to you may not be not essential to you, but maybe essential to someone else. Mm. There's also the issue that uh, rumours that people were going to close bottle shops led to runs on the bottle shop and everyone Mm. being clustered into a confined space, Mm. uh, being willing to glass each other over the precious, (laughs) precious alcohol. Mm. So uh, it, it could have been done if the government had shuttered every liquor store in the nation overnight with zero warning. But that would be hard to do. I mean, how and do you India do that? And it didn't go very well. Not with, the, not with alcohol, sorry, but they, they went from, hey, society's open to, hey, society's closed in six hours. And there was, there was panic in the streets because of it. So there's, there's a, there can be negatives as well. And in Italy, uh, there was a big problem going the other way, though, that they had their initial outbreak of COVID and they said, OK, in 48 hours, we're going to lock down this area and no one leaves. Mm-hmm. So what happened? A whole lot of sick people said, 48 hours, I'm mm-hmm. out of here, all we over run. the country. Yeah. Yeah, in COVID with them. That was a case where the government should have done whatever it took to not provide warning mm-hmm. uh, and just say, 
overnight. Sorry, uh, as of five seconds ago, no one's getting in and no one's getting out. Uh, so, yeah, uh, but I think they made the right call with liquor stores that flooding hospitals with alcoholics getting the DTs wouldn't have helped things. No. And there's no way in a society like Australia of keeping the move secret long enough to prevent <laughs> riots at the liquor stores and you know, a run on the liquor stores and then people being stuck at home with six months worth of liquor and nothing else to do and uh, well, i think well actually yeah. it may be useful because you can if you don't have toilet paper you can definitely use liquor to keep everything clean back there it would work very That's very well true. it's they should have thought it through all right we're going to start wrapping this up so i just want to run through we're going to start at the lowest level we're going to work our way up so if you had a magic machine that could take all the chemicals out of the human body and, and you get to sell those chemicals, like the gold and the uh, potassium in your body and the aluminium and the carbon, the oxygen and everything, all that good stuff, uh, then you'd be worth about $160. So that's, mm-hmm. so that's so human life. Admittedly, that's, of course, having a machine that can extract for free and you're selling at full price. So let's, but let's not go too much into that. So there's $160. Then we've got human human organs. Uh, some people say worth up to forty five million. Like you could sell your heart for a million dollars, and you could sell your uh, your livers over half a million dollars, and your kidneys about a quarter of a million dollars. So, and your skin is worth ten dollars an inch for two and a half centimeters, basically. Stomach five hundred dollars. Eyeballs one thousand five hundred dollars each. Like these are this is big money. So we we could get Australia's economy back on track if we all just passed one kidney to the left. Uh, <laughs> Making a billion dollars worth of value per transaction. Exactly right. <laughs> so that's they're saying that the human body could be worth up to forty-five million, but actually, a dead person is worth about half a million. So let's let's just go with the half a million. And so I was going to say you were saying nine point six million for lifetime use of that body yes. earlier. So I think forty-five million seems excessive but if it is then yeah, okay but yeah let's go for half a million half a as million. the realistic value value of a healthy conveniently corpse. dead body that's yeah. right conveniently dead body yes conveniently and and then of course our um, american environmental protection agency the value of a statistical life at 9.6 million dollars so mm. there we go. There are limits um, and you don't have to, you can go on either side and you can go to zero or you can go to infinity so kevin low Philosopher at large, where do you value human life in this place? Where, where do you put your value? Uh, I would say somewhere in the four to uh, nine point six range, uh, because I think in Australia we undervalue it for political reasons. But I recognise that you're getting into significantly diminishing returns once you are willing to spend more than about four million to save a life. It's not like the lives you're saving at that point are cheap lives anymore. Mm. Um, but I think a very large amount of what we spend our energy and resources on as a society, we don't really need. Uh, and maybe this just reflects my bias, what I think is important, but I walk through the shopping district of the city and see so many handbags and clothes and suits and silk ties and things that no one really needs for anything. We could just wear a sack uh, with some holes <laughs> cut in. Uh, we can wear, uh, we, to, I, once again, to quote Fight Club, we can all wear deer skin clothes, like one set of clothes that lasts your entire life. Mm. Uh, we could do that and we could devote the money that we save uh, that we're wasting on all this other junk to uh, extending human life and making it more fulfilling and interesting and enjoyable. And I would rather we do that because I, again, just my evaluation, uh, I don't see a $5,000 handbag as producing $5,000 worth of real value compared to other things we could spend it on. Um, but once you get past uh, $10 million, 
uh, or so, you know, you'd get into the level where if we all lived our whole lives just dedicating all of our labor and effort towards extending human life, uh, we wouldn't extend it any further. Uh, so there's got to be a limit because life isn't all about just extending human life. It's about doing something fun and interesting and important with that lifetime that you do have. So more than four, less than ten, I'd be I'd struggle to pin it down to more than that. And that's for a typical notional statistical average life. Uh, if you're already 80 and you've you know alcoholic with liver failure, <laughs> a bit less. Um, <laughs> If you're a cute little toddler, I'll, I'll spot you a few million. <laughs> You'll take some out. That, and there, yeah, there it is. Uh, it's look, Kevin. Thank you once again for chatting to me. I I think this is something that everyone needs to think about. It's it's a fun conversation, I guess. Fun human life, value human life is fun. Mm. But I think it's an important thing for people to think about because we have to make these decisions. And it's and if you want, if you believe that life is priceless, to the listener, if you believe that life is priceless. What does that actually mean? I don't believe in priceless. If you believe that life is price, priceless, not price, hang on, what's the word? Uh, no price, value, valueless is what I'm looking for. Then what does that mean? I mean, obviously life has some value to someone somewhere. What's your life got to do with you? I guess you have to think of that number yourself. And once again, in the democratic system, I hope you're part of that you can actually then push that forward and understand why other people may have a different value of that life that you have and don't just yell at them because they have a different value to you. Yeah. Mm. And one last nugget of science to chew on for you and everyone else out there. It's well established by multiple studies that all cause mortality in civilized nations goes down during economic downturns. The worse the economy does, the longer we all live statistically. Really? Yes. <laughs> citation needed sir but okay mm -hmm. wow that's that's amazing that well there you go well thank you COVID-19 you've doing the world a favor mm, in a very real and meaningful statistically provable way oh that's that's um wow um yeah I, uh, uh Strump, Charters, Harper and Nandy oh they said wow 2017? Oh, I jokingly yeah. said citation needed, and there's a citation. Oh, you're amazing, Kevin. Thank you very much once again for chatting oh, today. A uh, great and, pleasure, as always. Wash your hands. Yes. So where do you sit, listener? Where do you put the value of human life? It's Is it something you think about, or do you just say, no, I would never put a value on human life? How do you value it? It's It's a really hard question. Thanks for joining us once again, dear listener. Make sure you wash your hands, make sure you look after each other and have a little bit of time for people who are slightly different to yourself because we're all humans at the end. Well, most of you are anyway. And we have to get through this together. Before we finish up, though, I have a few more minutes from the interview I cut out of the main body of the recording with Kevin. Enjoy and see you next time. I was going to ask you about... One thing I heard was some people saying that, well, if you want to go out and, and get, you know, go out and, and mix with people, that's fine. But you have to sign a waiver saying that if you get COVID, that you won't accept any government paid medicine. So you like you won't take up a ventilator if you require one. It's an issue that comes up with everything from skateboarding to motorcycle riding to driving a car. That mm. if you knowingly do a risky thing and you fuck yourself up, uh, does that limit society's obligation to try and put you back together again? afterwards mm. and a lot of people have the intuition that it should 
for a certain degree of risk, but also at the same time, we're okay with you know, setting skateboarders broken arms and things, mm. even though they did a dumb thing, that we are okay to have that spending money there, perhaps because we think that people are going to do dumb things because they're not really weighing up the financial costs and benefits mm. when they do it, and everyone's better off if these people are patched up and returned to being productive citizens rather than you know, begging on the streets with their broken skateboarder arms. We don't just let people die because they're dumb. Mm. We just we, but that that shows a level of humanity where we show that actually yes people do dumb things and what's really horrible in this case if you say well if you go out there and you catch COVID and you need a ventilator and there's not one well then you die and actually a good chance you'll die on a ventilator anyway but yeah it's not it's not a magical wand but you rolled the dice again you rolled the dice you go I really want to have that beer with two hundred other people in a pub and then you catch a disease and then or you might catch a disease which they may then might become severe, which then might require to be on a ventilator, which then might not be there for you. There's all these mites and percentage chances that you decided to roll your dice. And society isn't willing to let you die. But on the other hand, society is also not going to suddenly say, well, we're going to get a million ventilators so everyone in Australia can have one. Like it's, there's that balance again of the money you said before between four and nine million dollars. Mm. And complicating it is the fact that you could give it to someone else, which is where it gets really tricky. Are you going to pay out of your pocket for the treatment all the people yeah. you infect? Yeah, I mean, well, there's not way you could reasonably commit to doing that because you don't know how many people you're going to infect. You know, there were some super spreaders who gave it to hundreds of people who then gave it to thousands of people. Mm. Well, now you can. If you download the COVID Safe app, they can tell exactly who mm -hmm. you infected and then they can charge you uh, just fine. They can say, actually, Greg, you gave it to these 10 people. You now, your insurance company says that you now have to pay for them. So your insurance company is like, son of a bitch. So they'll hit up the people you infected. And it all goes back to the one poor bastard patient zero in China somewhere. Joke's on you, insurance company. I've got an iPhone. The app doesn't work. 